everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 171, December of 2023. Our guest this month is Anne Flamang. Anne is a theater artist and a writer. She is also a retired Coast Guard captain and professor emerita of English at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Anne founded The Depot, once a local community of play readers in Connecticut, but since the onslaught of COVID and the advent of Zoom, The Depot has become a worldwide venue for new plays to be heard. And some other absolutely amazing things, which I really want to get into because it interests me terribly. Um, how did you find your way into theater? Because you've got a military background. And I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive. Okay. Right. But I found that usually past backgrounds either feed each other or affect each other in some way. So let's talk about you in theater. How did you get there? And you must be happy with it because you've right. been doing it for a while. Um. Oh, gosh. You know, this is one of those awful stories about when I was a child. I love but... it already. <laughs> when I grew up in a big Roman Catholic family. Mm. And my mother loved theater and she was the volunteer director for the student productions at the Catholic school that we, the parochial school we attended. Sure. I was like a younger member of the family. And so as just, you know, uh, nobody got babysitters back then. So what she would do was she would just put me in the play. Nice. <laughs> And, and I, I liked it. I mean, yeah. I, I liked it. And she thought my wonderful mother thought I, I was a creature of the stage. What she told me once, and I'm, this sounds like a humble boast, but it's not, I'm just re mm -hmm. reporting the history. Um, she said once, you know, when you're on stage, all the eyes are drawn to you. Um, and I think because she observed that, she would take me to auditions and I ended up in some college plays. And I don't think I was as attracted to it all because of the audience so much as I was, I was the kid backstage with all the adults. Okay, and yeah. I think I liked being the center of attention <laughs> mm -hmm. of all the adults. And it's probably because in a big family, it was hard to be the center of attention yeah. of the adults. You had to share their time with all your siblings. So I think theater for me then was just this place where there was a backstage world where I was special. I can totally <laughs> understand that. It's... yeah. My parents had a huge social circle, and for the record, we were Roman Catholic also, but that didn't really have much anything to do with it. Um, I think we saw the church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Um, oh, okay. But um, technically, we are Roman Catholics. But they had a big social circle, and it was always adults, and I was usually the only child there. And okay. I became very good at shutting up and listening. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And whenever I was invited or allowed to enter the conversation, I felt special. I felt like 
I'm dealing with the adults now. Yes, I'm seven years old and I can conquer the world. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. I, used, I used to live for those moments because all of a sudden it raised me above my my normal childlike level to a point right. where, yeah, it was it, it was definitely a special moment. So I mean, but being backstage with all these adults, that had to be, with so much going on, learning how to behave in theater, that must have been interesting. Um, I, I think uh, for me, it was a lot like everything else, right? Yeah. You go to church, on, unlike your family, George, my family went to mass <laughs> every Sunday. We went to catechism. We went to parochial school. Mm. Um, so... You know, you, I mean, just the rituals of the church, besides the fact that obviously they come or theater comes out of religious ritual historically sure, yeah. in the mm -hmm. West. Um, and the Catholic Church is, you know, it's a, it's a script, right? Everyone follows. Oh, the script. absolutely. So, yes. so it's very theatrical. But I mean, as far as like behavior, there were certain modes of behavior. And so and I am not a I. I'm not a particularly rebellious person. And so, oh, okay, this is the way we're supposed to behave here. I'm good with that. That's yeah. not, you know, that's no problem for me. School was similar. You sit in your desk, you pay attention, you do your homework. Right? So a lot of the, the characteristics of, of that, I, I think a director looks for in an actor, someone who's going to be cooperative, um, someone who's going to work hard, someone who's going to be disciplined, show up on time oh, yeah. with the lines, right? And, and you know, follow, take direction. Um, I kind of picked up just in, you know, the kind of life that we led in the 1960s, which was you go to school, you go to church, you yep. know, all of those things sort of I'd already developed those, those habits, if you will. Sure. And they weren't, I didn't rebel against them. I didn't think of them as stupid or a waste of my time. I wasn't one of those kids. So. Right. Well, I, yeah. I think learning, because I've, I've watched my friends, kids grow up and I've had small parts in, in some, some of their, you know, some of their upbringing. And I know from my own past that having a structure can be a wonderful thing having the, I'm going to say the rules without trying to sound oppressive, having the envelope fully defined within right. all of this, this is, this is good. You have room to play within this right. envelope, but once you step exactly. outside the envelope, it affects others and it right. affects the operation of whatever, whatever it is you're trying to succeed in doing and making that an enriching thing, making that we're all in this together rather than I'm restricting your movements just because we need to have rules kind of thing is can be highly beneficial. Right. And you just said it so beautifully. Oh, I, I, I just absolutely, <laughs> I love that idea. And you just expressed it, I think, really beautifully. And I think that's how I felt as a child. We were not, we were what is now called free range children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that there's a term for it. You know, in the it's 1960s, it was yeah. just childhood. Um, but, you know, so there was a lot of, a lot of my time was unstructured because our, 
my mother just, you know, she needed us out of the house. So she wouldn't yeah. go insane. So it was like, go outside and play. And a lot of times I played by myself. I didn't always go play with friends and I didn't always play with my siblings. And within that world, which was, you know, I wasn't, she didn't want me just to wander aimlessly around the neighborhood. Yeah. I pretty much played in the yard, but, um, but you know, it was, it was what I, it was out of my mind and out of my creativity. Um, but then there were the times when one knew, okay, right now, you know, it can't be whatever Anne wants to do. It has to be kind of what the group is doing right now. And I, I, I don't know how my parents managed to convey that one needs to learn to make those transitions yeah. um, without having a temper tantrum. Um, but somehow they did and somehow I did. And so I think when I was little and was in those college plays, that that was how I kind of understood what the expectations for me were. My mother wasn't, a, you know, the classic staged mother mm -hmm. yeah I, I think she I think what she was was a an educator who had um six children who were all different and what she wanted was to let us become the people our temperaments and psychologies and intelligences yeah. were gonna where it made sense for us to develop. And I, and I think the performing arts was what she thought was right for me. She did not, my other siblings did not do theater. Okay. Um, uh, so, it, and that's because she saw different things for them. So she wasn't. But that's so much to me. handle six kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know. Crazy. It was crazy. But anyway, I mean, well, you know what happens. The older siblings take care of the younger ones. So, um, You're talking to but, an only child, so this is all. I'm, okay, I'm learning as what we go What happens here. is yeah. the older siblings, not the boys, the girls, take yeah. care of the younger siblings, um, and that, and so they become like junior moms, right. and that's the right. way. You know, I still see my oldest sister in that way. She's like my junior mom. Um, so anyway, so that's that's the background of how I came to theater, and then what happened was in high school, I thought I really wanted to major in theater in college, but mm -hmm. there just wasn't money to send me to college. And so, or any, you know, I mean, there might've been money to send one of us to college, but my father's feeling was, if I can't do it for all, I do it for none, right. which I think was a kind of a, a way to pre prevent sibling resentment. Sure, um, yeah. And so he told me very early on, if you want to go to college, you're going to need to get a scholarship. And the military academies, although there weren't going to be a lot of arts at the military academies, it seemed like a really good scholarship to me. Um, so, uh, so that's how I ended up in the military. And then when I, because I went to a military academy and um, I mean, we did have a music program at the right. academy, so I got enough in my cadet years that I was satisfied. And then once I was in the Coast Guard, I really liked the service. So I would do mm -hmm. community theater, but um, but yeah, I 
and then I, but, you know, obviously I wasn't going to pursue it professionally. And then when I was, when I was nearing retirement, um, I have a friend who had, who had gone to Yale Mm -hmm. and knew everyone at Yale and set up a meeting with me and for me with the dean of the of the what was then the drama school right um james bundy um and another person he knew at the school who taught who was the head of the theater management program his name was ed martinson yeah i was going to get into that because theater management it seems it's like so different right and of course (laughs) you know yale was like oh my god you know i mean yeah yeah so i um I subsequently met with Ed Martinson and told him I want to go into acting. And I was in my early fifties and he mm-hmm. looked at me, he was quite blunt. He said, well, <laughs> you're not going to get into Yale right? because you're 25 years too old. Yes. And he said, and, and you, you know, these things can be hard to hear, but, I mean, we all know that there are fewer roles for middle-aged women <laughs> than there You're are for well young women. Aware and there well, but at the time that was what people believed. And that there were fewer roles for women mm-hmm. than there were for men. And in fact, I knew a program in England that they accepted every year fewer women into the class than men. Um, because there yeah. are fewer roles for women. And it's like really you know, why should we prepare too many women actors? They're just going to be unemployed. Um, But so it was Ed who suggested, well, why don't you come to Yale, spend a year and just do theater management? And I will. And he said, I will tell you, you will learn a lot about theater Mm -hmm. in the year that you're here. And so um, I thought, okay. Uh, at the time I was working with, and I'm still working with, uh, theater company in New London. And I thought, okay, I can use what I learn at Yale to help this company in New London where I act, I direct, I stage yeah. manage, right? And so um, so, so the year at Yale didn't seem crazy. It's, it, it, it seems I very thought practical I would be able and a very smart to, thing to yeah, do. Yeah, it was very practical. Um, yeah. And I got to do some acting while I was at Yale, so that was fun. Um, but, uh, but, in any case, um, so that's how I ended up at Yale. Um, and one of the things I did at Yale was I took a playwriting class, this uh, course in micro dramas, so mm-hmm. all short plays, and I really enjoyed it. And that's what led to the depot because my thought was if you're going to write plays, you need to read plays. Right. But reading plays by yourself is really kind of sad and lonely. So, what what one I was writing do. them. I'll tell you for that much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What one should do is to get one's friends together in one's red barn and yeah. read plays as a group. And that was the genesis of the depot. Which is how you and I met. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, which I don't would not have happened had it not been for COVID, I think, because because I'm assuming when you started this, it was an in-person neighborhood, I'm neighborhood in quotes, people, uh, kind of physical get-together. Here's a script, let's sit in a circle and 
you know, uh, do this thing. But when I met you, this was like so many other places that were looking for a way to survive now that we could not be near each other for fear of killing each other. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the depot. Uh, I found you that right. way. It, and, it was. In fact, yeah. we had, I really wanted playwrights to come into the space. Um, and, you know, People came up from Philadelphia, they drove down from Boston, someone came from Ithaca, stayed with a friend. I mean, it's just what I put the playwrights through in those first years was really... Who was the playwright from Ithaca? was really, um, uh, what's the word I want? Inconvenient, to Inconvenient. say the very least. Yeah. Um, but they they came and we read their plays and we gave them feedback. But you're right, absolutely. With COVID, mm -hmm. there was no way we could do that. And that is when I discovered Zoom. I didn't even know it existed before COVID. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, and that really opened up possibilities for playwrights who didn't live, you know, in a reasonable drive of Northeast Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah. yes. So I, I could have, I could have you as a playwright at the Yay, and I was so Yay. glad to be there too. You guys did a, <laughs> such a wonderful job with the play. I was, I was so very, very happy with that. Um, yeah. We, um, yeah, it's uh zoom was maybe not a good thing for theater in general, but it was a good thing for the depot. Theater. Actually. All right. Here's the thing. <laughs> For since Sophocles, all right, people have been going. Theater is in danger. You know, newer generations will not take to this, whatever it happens to be, and they've been wrong for twelve thousand years. Theater right. survives. Okay, <laughs> it does. Um, it it does. survived plagues. All right. Right. Shakespeare's globe was shut down innumerable times because people were walking around with the bleeding pox, and <laughs> exactly. We we've had. The Hundred Years' War. We've had the, the, the oh, right. World Wars yeah. one, two, and oh, it yeah. stops there. Yeah. And, but Napoleon just wasted the entire coast, you know, the entire Europe. Um, but theater has managed to survive. Yes, because stories yes. always need to be told. That is our primary way. What happened? And then we go into a long diatribe, or you know, that's right. And and the strange thing is. We, we have the most fun talking about the most horrific experiences, like that play was so bad. Let me tell you about that play. And, and, then, and then you get mm. a great conversation over that. But right. that can also happen with good stuff. But theater keeps going. Nothing is going to kill this. Um, right. Exactly. But, but it shifts. We went from in person to now we have the technology. Right. Like you and I are doing right now. We're on Zoom. That's right. We're on Zoom, um, which is good because you're in Central America yep. and I'm in New England. <laughs> but um, yeah, so right. So what we're discovering this summer is what my husband calls a hybrid reading, which is the people in the area who want to come to the barn. We can sit in the barn and I set up my laptop and the actors are on Zoom on my laptop, but we are together. And so the playwright can be hither and yon, right? right it doesn't yeah. matter where the playwright is. Um, and it doesn't even matter, um, I discovered, if all the actors are in the space because 
from the playwright's perspective, yeah. the whole reading can be on Zoom, but some of us can be in the barn together and some of us aren't going to be in the barn. And it doesn't matter because okay. the technology brings it all together in one space. That was my that was going to be my next question, because a lot yeah. of people are now starting to go back places that I'm, I, I became aware of via Zoom are now right. going back to in person because it's more traditional. It's it's what we want to do. Uh, it gets us back to where we were. But if you're going to do a hybrid of this, I'm wondering, does the technology keep up with actors, let's say in Central America or, or in California or someplace, you know, Massachusetts or wherever, does it keep up with the actors you have live? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, not quite. Um, I would say only uh, because we had one fully in-person reading at the beginning of this season. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, even in a reading, actors are going to bounce off one another, right? Yeah. Um, and in the reading that we did, which was hybrid, where some of the actors came into the barn and some of them did not, um, the actors in the barn were bouncing off one another, but the actor who wasn't couldn't quite bounce right in the same way yeah. because he wasn't in the space with everybody else. Um, so it's, it's, again, I think my husband's right. It's sort of a hybrid. Um, mm -hmm. and we kind of had to do it this year because we selected plays that, for casting reasons and also because of the playwrights, you know, one of the playwrights sure, yeah. is in England, um, aren't going to come, aren't, weren't able to come to New England. Uh, Zoom was going to be a part of the picture anyway. Sure. Um, next year, I don't know because um, we can have in mind it's safe to be in the barn so we can pick plays where I know I've got the actors in the area and all the actors can be in the space even if the playwright is not in the space so okay. uh, we'll see uh, but uh, you're right there's a trade-off with not yeah. having everybody there we make do and I think we learn to adapt to those new technicalities that we find a little bit challenging and we always somehow manage to find a way around this right you know it's, it's right one of, one of my favorite movie quotes of all time is from shakespeare in love and one actor says to uh, jeffrey rush he says how do you manage to keep this this going between the sicknesses and the money and the <laughs> venue changes and all the disasters and jeffrey rush just looks at him and goes i don't know it's a mystery. <laughs> and I annoyed so many people in the theater around me because I was like, that's, yep, yep. Okay, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a mystery. We, we make it work somehow. I, yeah, I, we make it. We make it work. I was looking through all the information that you sent me. And I know you spent, how many years did you spend in the military, in the Coast Guard? Okay, so I spent 30 years okay. in the Coast Guard and um You ended up a captain. I that's right, which yeah. is the same that people understand the army better. It's the same as a colonel in the army. It's just like one below admiral gotcha. um in the rank structure. So it's pretty senior. Um and 
you know, I did sort of typical things. I went to sea and I worked in a in a staff job, um, but then um, I was assigned to the academy to teach English mm -hmm. and the Coast Guard Academy located in New London, Connecticut, has um, a, a, a kind of faculty known as the Permanent Commissioned Teaching Staff. And hybrid, again, um, they are military officers, so they are all Coast Guard officers, um, but they hold PhDs and are... Um, what do I want to say? They are active academics. They right. research, they publish, right? So there's sort of a cross between the military faculty who, who teach at the academy for four years and then go back into the operational Coast Guard and continue their career in the operational Coast Guard and the civilian faculty who, of course, all have PhDs and um, publish and, yep. you know, do all that publish and perish stuff. Um, so while I was teaching at the academy as a junior officer, I was offered the opportunity to apply for the permanent commission teaching staff. And I really loved teaching. Um, I really loved being with the cadets. And so I applied for that, for the position. And, and I was uh, the person who was chosen. So really, I had this very unusual Coast Guard career in that I spent 22 years of it at the mm -hmm. Coast Guard Academy. <laughs> it sounds like a highly productive and a highly useful one. I mean, it sounds like it played to your skills. Uh, it did, actually. Um, yeah, I think because both my parents were educators and I mm -hmm. had a grandfather who was an educator. And I tend to think these things run in families. Um, so it did, actually. It was a great place for for my set of yep skills, whatever they might be, but working with that age group, 18 to 22, because most cadets are 18 to 22. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's very much a period of great intellectual development, but it's also a period of personal maturation um, and to be a person who guided the cadets through that yes. you know, critical period in their adult lives was I, I couldn't have asked for a better job in the Coast Guard. It's exactly what I wanted to do. It sounded like you played a supremely important role in their in their military and educational uh, development because it can't be easy. Uh, teaching college is not easy. Teaching high school is a nightmare. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm getting the shakes just thinking about it. But uh, <laughs> teaching college, it's you get to a point where they're so exploratory. And they're more open to things. And I think that's the key to finding how best to serve them. Um, which is what yeah, it is. It's, um, it's, uh, it's kind of learning who they are yeah. and figuring out what they need to get to where they need to go. One, one difference between like, you know, teaching at a, what we would at the academy would have called a civilian college, but the mm -hmm. rest of the country would just call college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that unlike, unlike, uh, you know, if I had taught at say UConn, for instance, mm -hmm. my students would be going everywhere, right? Some of them would be pre-med. Some of them would want to be lawyers. Some of them would want to go into business of some sort. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, but at the Coast Guard Academy, all the cadets are going into the Coast Guard. <laughs> and I was in the Coast Guard. Right. So I knew exactly, <laughs> right? Uh, the whole faculty knew sure. exactly where they were headed and the kinds of jobs they would be asked to do and the kinds of responsibilities that they would be given. So we had a very clear sense of what needed to happen in their development. Right. Well, that must have been a great advantage because obviously, you know, the other students can go anywhere. You know exactly where they're supposed to go. So your your courses and your skills and, and your program can be so much more finely honed to the needs of your students. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, one could argue that's a limitation because the students mm. don't have the flexibility to explore as much as another student would have um, at a, you know, at a big yeah. flagship university sure. like UConn. But, um, but uh, you know, by and large, the, the young adults who came to the Coast Guard Academy wanted to serve. Right. Um, and so th the trade-offs with being at a military academy were ones that, by and large, they were, they were willing to accept because they really they've already wanted agreed to, to serve. It. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They've, they've already selected what they're going to do after they get out right. of college. You know, yeah. and I'm, I switched majors, I don't know how many times, and people I know <laughs> switched majors how many times. And right. uh, that sort of thing, I imagine, doesn't happen very often in a military academy. Yeah, it does. Academy. It's hard. It's, it's yeah. hard to switch majors. I mean, it yeah. happens, but it, because the the curriculum is so pinned down and right. you don't get a fifth year. It's again, it's not like UConn where, you know, you can say, okay, mm -hmm. I need a fifth year to finish up my, re, you know, course requirements. You don't get a fifth year at the no. Coast Guard Academy because the taxpayer is paying for it. Um, and so, uh, so just to switch majors can be at a certain point, Mm -hmm. can be impossible because they just don't have the time to get all the courses in. Yeah, but they're all already well aware of that. So they're yeah. aware yeah. of how yeah. how important their choices are. I have one yeah. silly question, then I want to move on to your writing. So if they're late with their homework, okay, did sure. you make them swab the decks or peel potatoes or something? Or what? <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. No, I always thought all the military punishments should should reside in the military world. You know, the military side of yeah. of academy training um so no although once i will say uh -huh. and some of my colleagues thought this was very very funny not my academy colleagues my victorian studies colleagues my mm. area of specialty in in graduate school was victorian studies and i taught a course on the women's buildings roman one year and uh selected george eliot's middle march which, George, I don't know if you took a literature course where you were required I didn't to take read that Middle one. March. Yeah. But chances are you might not have read it. <laughs> I confess you, to not you, having read that one, yes. <laughs> you might have you might have pretended you read it. <laughs> so yeah. um I told my students, and I honestly didn't know if I had the authority to do this or not, but I was not the kind of professor who asked a lot of questions. So I told my students on the first day of class, you will read Middlemarch. And before the semester ends, you will come to me, to my office, and tell me, to my face, that you finished reading every word of Middlemarch, oh. or I will flunk you. 
dutifully. That's ah, you've already got I was one of those horrible professors. So dutifully, the cadets came to my office one by one, not all within the period in which we actually discussed the novel, of course, but they did come. And, you know, I heard about the burning the book parties later and I kind of laughed about it. <laughs> oh, um, oh. But then, you know, years later, one of the students came up to me and he said, you know, it was one of the best books I read when I was a cadet, and I mm. would never have read it if you hadn't forced us to do it. Um, nice. So, no, I didn't yeah. make them swab decks, but I did okay. make them read Middle March. <laughs> I think I'd rather peel potatoes, thanks. I exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, I want to talk more about your writing. You've... Okay. Um, the place of the humanities at a military academy automatically caught my eye because... Mm -hmm. To, to a civilian mind like mine, okay, I'm thinking humanities, why would you bother with humanities at a military, okay, and from there on, once I actually start thinking, I can actually get through to the practical uses and the naturalistic uses of this. But this paper has been adopted as a composition text at the Coast Guard Academy, which means this is taught. Yeah, okay? yeah. Um, and I know we've already kind of broached this subject a little bit about the importance of it, but let's let's give it another couple of minutes because this is this is now a standardized text. And then I want to get into some of your other writing, which I can't wait to get into because the subject matter just thrills me. Okay, um, right. So what happened was I'll try and be brief about this. Um, in we had a government major which was housed in the Department of Humanities, which was one of the earliest departments at the Coast Guard Academy. So mm -hmm. um, the Coast Guard Academy had always kind of had a Department of Humanities, and it was where the courses that were largely the gen ed courses in the liberal arts were housed. Um, and then there, um, there was a government major, and it made sense for whatever sense, I guess, because we didn't have a social sciences department that government or what now people would call political science was in the humanities department. And one of the required courses for the government majors was an upper division level literature course. Um, and uh, around 2000, I was given the opportunity to develop a course called literature and the other arts. And the course, permitted me to combine my interest in art history with literature. Um, and there's kind of, it's a, it's a standard area of study in literary, um, in literary, in literature, let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it's not like I created it out of whole cloth, uh, but I created a course that was very much my own. Um, and cadets loved it. And I think one of the reasons, and it drew cadets from other majors. I got engineers in that class. I got math majors in that class. I got um, uh, uh, science majors who tended to be the best students, actually. And I always thought that was because um, as scientists, they were taught to observe phenomena closely. Um, and so when it came to looking at a painting, they they were already trained to look closely. It wasn't mm -hmm. like a weird thing for them. Um, but in any case, in the course of developing the class and teaching it, 
uh, I met George White. <clears throat> George White, you may know, founded the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, which is located in the town next door to New London. It's located in Waterford, Connecticut. And as you know, New London, of course, was the childhood home of Eugene O'Neill. So there are a lot of like... <laughs> There you go. Pretty important American theater connections within 20 minutes of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Um, and George was really taken with what I was doing. And I uh, had planned uh, already in the works to take mm -hmm. the cadets to New York City to see a production of Glass Menagerie with um, Jessica Lang. Oh, nice. As uh, Amanda. Yeah. I vaguely remember the rest of the cast, but that definitely was Jessica Lang. But I, this is one of my favorite plays, and we had, we had read it, and so we were going down, and George White asked me if I would be open to having the cadets meet the cast after the show. And I'm like, have the cadets meet Jessica Lang? Oh, uh, I think... <laughs> I think that's, that's okay. We can manage that. We, we can <laughs> so, fit it in. Yeah, no worries. So, well, I mean, George White, as you can imagine, knows everybody in right. New York theater. So he knew the producer. So the producer set it up. And uh, so after a Wednesday night performance, I mean, it, it boggles my mind that a two-time Oscar, you know, Academy Award winner yeah. agreed to coming out... <laughs> After a Wednesday night performance and sitting on the stage and taking questions from Coast Guard Academy cadets. But she and the other three members of the cast did it. Yeah. Um, and I think because I was open to to George help, if you will, helping, <laughs> helping me out right. through his auspices and his connections, we you know, we took cadets to the Metropolitan Opera. We took um, we took cadets to Florence, Italy, over their spring break, where they studied drawing for a week at a at a four year intensive studio art program called yeah. the Florence Academy. I mean, these opportunities that just would never have come up, but for George White's extraordinary generosity. That is extraordinary, um, yeah. And and so that the essay came out of that uh, and I was asked to write it because the editor of the journal knew me and thought it was interesting what I was doing for the same reason that you mentioned, George, which is when people thought think of military academies, sure. they don't yeah. think the humanities. And so she thought it was interesting what I was doing with this sort of half-baked uh arts program if you will mm -hmm. um for cadets and so that's that's where the that's where the essay came from and it and i mean it's it's what we all know mm -hmm. in the arts yeah. and the humanities that we are hungry for it we are hungry for stories oh, yes. I, I knew this teaching a class with you know we're we we've gotten to a point in history where there aren't a lot of shared texts um, and so you teach a 19th century text that has a lot of biblical references. And at one time, everyone would have known the references or they right. would have known most of them. But, you know, by the 
1980s and 1990s, and certainly by the time we shift into the 21st century, very few people, very few of my students knew the stories. And so, yeah. you know, I would stop and tell the story. Now, I'm not a trained storyteller, but the students would get still. And to me, that was always evidence Mm -hmm. They are hungry for these stories. And most of their mass media consumption, particularly in the arts, where everything shifts in Hollywood from stories that have, or, you know, from films that have stories to uh, spectacle, right? Yeah. Um, things blowing up, superheroes and mm, transformers yes. and, you know, uh, the whole Marvel universe. There isn't really, I suppose, I shouldn't say, I don't know. I, I think there are stories there, but it's not what drives We're talking the about film. the difference between uh, plot and spectacle, which goes all the right. way back to poetics. Goes all the way back to Aristotle, exactly. Absolutely, and yeah. so, so what, so that was my point about humanities at a military academy mm -hmm. and particularly when one thinks that what are they going to be dealing with i mean the things that i was dealing with as the junior officer right because the people who work for me were older you know so i'm dealing with someone whose wife has accused him of abusing their children i mean you mm -hmm. know so i mean and i am 23 years old so so these you know this is what we're preparing our our young, you know, our cadets to confront our yeah. these these real <laughs> these real realities of people's lives. Not and that doesn't even bring into account. This is just like from a supervisory or leadership point of view. It doesn't even bring into account the kind of work they're doing, which, you know, throughout the odds, not so much the Coast Guard, although the Coast Guard was involved in the global war on terror and we did have units over there yeah. and we did lose a coastie in the global war on terror but nothing compared to the army right, right. um or the marine corps right so you know just taking out of the equation what they would confront in their day-to-day -day jobs if they were deployed to an active um you know to a to a war zone yeah. right um so I, how else do you do it except through the humanities? <laughs> humanities enriches everybody, it teaches us about other humans, our triumphs, our foibles, our tendencies, our fears, our prejudices, our need to find love at all levels of our growth. Right. It teaches us who we are and Regardless if you have a crew of young people who are working their way into a military profession, I would guess they would be especially in need of more humanitarian education because I think it would inform what they do, not weaken their resolve, but inform what they do and see people see themselves and see their friends in a more communal way i would hope I've, that oh you say things so well are you a writer uh, i'm thinking about it yeah i'm gonna go from shopping list to magnum opuses next week
Um, yeah, so, last yes. thing before I, I, I let sure. you go is more about your writing. And this has a particular uh, particular draw for me because I have some small, re some small research experience with this. Mm. And it has okay. to do with gender in the military. And mm. I don't want to ask the open question, what's it like being a woman in the Coast Guard? Because we could go on that for hours. And I think a lot right. of people have asked that. And I think a lot of people kind of already know the answer to that. But you have papers, Camouflage and Gender, Disrupting Human Normality, and Cami Girls, The Art of Representing Women at War. And I have done research for a group of uh, some of the most extraordinarily brave people I've ever read about in my life, uh, The Night Witches, which were mm. a group of World War II Russian fighter pilots, the first in history, pretty much, for women to be active combat fighter pilots rather than just wow. shipping planes wow. from here to there, actually getting sure, into sure. it. Right. And wow. they flew biplanes, by the way, against the Nazis with their Messerschmitts. Oh, my and all that goodness. Sort of stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a section yeah. in there where they were ill-equipped. All their camo, all, all their uniforms were from men. It was much too big. They had to take it in. Mm -hmm. They didn't have proper underwear, which is an important thing, mm. okay, mm. for a woman. Mm. And between the stresses that they went through, women lost their ability to have their periods. Women saw their mm. hair fall mm. out. Women saw their mm. sexuality yeah. being destroyed by the month. Um, mm. And it was beyond anything any man could reasonably imagine, I think. Mm. Um, so when I saw Camouflage and Gender and Cami Girls, I wanted mm. to ask you about this because mm. it, it's it's not one of those things that goes away. It's it's I guess it's what happens when women are in the military and they have to adapt to a violent male ordered uh, higher you know structure. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, one thing I, so I always say, well, I was in the Coast Guard. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it is, it comes under the Department of Defense in times of war, but in the, in times where, so since World War II, Congress has not declared war. So, um, although the Coast Guard was uh, deployed as I said, for the global war on terror and also mm -hmm. um, Persian Gulf War and also Vietnam. So uh, nevertheless, uh, it, that is war is not necessarily its primary mission. It's one of a number of missions, right? right. So the Coast Guard describes itself as a humanitarian service. Um, and that's because our roots are in stopping smugglers, the revenue cutter service mm -hmm. and the life-saving service, saving, saving, um, people and property at sea. So those are like the two are, uh, if you will, the sources of the sure. modern coast guard are those two different services that were sort of glommed together in the early 20th century. Um, and I think a lot of people who join the coast guard are people who, want to save lives. Now, whether or not they actually ever save a life really depends on what kind of jobs they take in the Coast Guard. But right. that, you know, initially in the, the recruitment 
hook for a lot of people in joining the Coast Guard is saving lives, which I think is a little bit different from DOD, um, which is more national defense, right? Okay. You know, serving your yeah. country in national defense. So, but having, you know, but so with that caveat, which is to say, I've never been myself deployed to an active war zone. Um, those papers came out of a course I was teaching um, called Gender, Race, and Leadership. And the course was a course that the cadets asked for. Um, they Women cadets wanted a course, and they went to our uh, director of diversity, inclusion, and equity um, and said, we don't know anything about women's history. Like, I just learned about the suffragettes um, this mm -hmm. past spring, and I'm going to be a senior in college, and how could I have not known about the suffrage movement? Um, so, so that, so that, um, the DEI director came to me because at the time I was the chair of the department of humanities. And he said, I'm not sure where to go. Would someone in your department be willing to, you know, develop a course that would address these women's concerns and offer it? And I said, sure, and I'll do it. Um, so I developed this course, gender, race and leadership, and, this was in the aughts and you know there was so much in that period coming out of iraq and afghanistan from women veterans about the second battle if you will mm -hmm. which was not against the enemy right it yeah. was against it you know it was a war perpetrated upon their bodies yes by the men they served with right exactly. yeah. and so this was you know, so and it's not that every woman who served had that experience, but way too many women had that right. experience. Right. Yeah. And so I wanted to prepare the women. I didn't want to do a women's history course is what I'm trying to say. Sure. What I wanted to do was to prepare them to serve in in units in the Coast Guard at places where they might be the only woman. Right. And so so and, you know, I knew I knew that from my experience. And so I could I could devise this course. And then the research sort of just drew on the research I was doing for the course. And what I became very fascinated with was um, or what I wanted to explore. And I think I was wrong. But what I wanted to explore was the source of the violence against women. Like, where did it come from? Right. Um, and what I, over a period of, over a, a period of years and these three papers, I, um, I kind of struck on the notion of the uncanny valley. Do you know that notion, George? No, I don't. I don't. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I think yeah. I should, but I um, don't. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't review this, so I'm not going to remember the name of the theorist who came up with it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I apologize for my my uh, poor preparation here, but he um, what he came what his idea was as uh, as people will look at a, a Roomba and if a robots so or a Roomba, right. and if you put little eyes and a mouth on it, we'll all go, "Oh, that's so cute," right? Mm -hmm. And you could graph a, a, you know, human response to robots um, by 
oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. Oh, wait, that looks really human. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then and then and then this like rejection. Right. And he called that drop off the uncanny valley because hmm. the the robot too closely resembled what we are. And it was, you know, the Freudian notion of the uncanny. Right. Sure. Um, and so. So the, I I wondered because I'd said for years, jokingly, just be mm -hmm. provocative, that women in uniform were cross dressers. To go back to your point about the night witches, yes, yeah, right, yeah, and and as I thought about that idea of women in the military as cross dressers, I thought. Well, how is that like this notion of something that looks like something else, but the something else knows it's not the same, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So bodies in military uniforms that look like the standard body in a military uniform, which is a man, right. but aren't male bodies. And so what is what what does that what does that incite, right? Sure. Um, and so I ended I would up. I think confusion would be at the top of the list. Well, confusion, perhaps. Um, all kinds of things. But yeah. I, my argument was that violence was um, was a predictable response, and I drew on not just the notion of the uncanny valley. Uh, that just was really kind of what propelled me in my thinking. But I drew on the writing of. Uh, Judith Butler, who um, uh, was one of the first really critical thinkers about gender and gender and culture. Um, and uh, I, in particular, drew on her notions of the way in which um, particularly the trans community incites violence. Yeah. Um, and so that that was where that writing came from. Um, so I... <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I just uh, that I don't know if I answered your question, George, right. but I. Um, yeah, you said trans community incites violence. That's right, because the idea which oh, I'm, I'm greatly oversimplifying. Yeah, no, Judith Butler's argument here. A massive what, target for violence. Right. A massive target for violence. But her argument is certain bodies in culture if they don't if they don't conform with a binary concept of gender yeah. mm -hmm. where masculinity maps onto male bodies and femininity maps onto female bodies right. then what you have is illegibility and if you're illegible something has to be done about you and one thing that can be done about you is to erase you right Right. Um, and that's, so that's that's what I suggested. Yeah. Women in in military uniform were in a certain sense illegible. Right. We didn't have a gender that people understood. I mean, we were all gendered. But what I'm saying no, no, is no, no, no. It's, the yeah, uniform it's, complicated yeah. it. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 All of a sudden it's we've got another variant. Well, a variation of the traditional binary, which. We're still fighting against that whole iconic superstructure of this is this and this is that. That's black and white. There's nothing in between because that right. is wrong. That is perverse. That is that is wrong. 
Right. And we cannot yeah. tolerate that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, women in the military, it's one of those things where are you a woman or are you a man? Or are you, you know, <laughs> what's up exactly. with you, honey? That sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Um, Although, may I just say this, George? Yes, I've been out of the military for, you know, quite a number of years now. So yeah. things might have changed. I can't. I'm definitely not speaking to anyone's experience now. I haven't done any research on it in over a decade. And so I, uh, I definitely I, would not. I certainly you know. hope things have progressed in that. In yes, that, that is, that is what I, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Flamang, this has been one of the best hours I've spent in a very, very long time. Thank you oh, so thanks much. Oh, so much. Oh, you're welcome, George. May I just say one thing about the depot for all your Oh, listeners? yeah, 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 please. Come on. Um, mm. uh, we accept um, submissions on a rolling basis. Right. Uh, and any any submission we've received by the 31st of December of a particular calendar year mm -hmm. will be considered for the following calendar year's depot season. Okay. Um, so we hold uh, submissions on file until the next submission or selection process begins, which is usually in early January. Good enough. And the URL to ship those submissions to is www.thedepot.space. That's thedepot.space. Good luck, kids. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at onoffstage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please stay safe. Be careful not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>